the Snowman Podcast. Welcome back to the Snowman Podcast. I'm your host, as always, the Snowman. I am really excited for today, folks. Because in this episode, I'm going to share with you some of the stories of the men who fought on D-Day, whose lives were forever changed by its events. Two of the stories I'm going to let the men themselves share with you, Sergeant Ray Lambert and Seaman Jim Radford. The other men you'll hear about in today's episode will include Major John Howard, Lieutenant Dick Winters, General Eric Marks, and Private John Steele. Also, at the end, there will be a bonus of FDR's address to the nation on the night of June 6th, where even back then, a socialist democratic president still had the fortitude to trust in God's ultimate plan. Resources used in this episode include www.ddayrevisited.com forward slash UK forward slash D-Day history forward slash D-Day landings forward slash Pegasus Bridge. Wikipedia.com forward slash Operation Dreadstick. Beyond Band of Brothers by Major Dick Winters. HBO's miniseries Band of Brothers. YouTube.com forward slash Shores of Normandy. The 1962 film The Longest Day. Every Man a Hero by Sergeant Ray Lambert. YouTube.com forward slash 2019 Memorial Day Concert forward slash Tribute to Ray Lambert. And www.normandyamericanheroes.com forward slash blog forward slash St. Mary Glaze paratrooper John Steele. All right. Are you ready? Great. Then let's take a walk back in time to relive these men's lives on the day of days. First up, we'll start with the man who first saw action, British Army Major John Howard. Just after 11 o'clock at night on June 5, 1944, English commandos of the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry, nicknamed the Oxenbucks, under the command of Major John Howard, loaded up into gliders that would carry them to their mission of capturing and holding a bridge that crossed over the Con Canal. Pegasus Bridge, as it would later be called, was wired for demolition, in case the Allies ever invaded. If they were successful in blowing it up, it would take the Allies much longer to secure both sides of the river. Major Howard and his men were ordered to capture it, remove any demolition packs they found, and then hold until relieved. They could not withdraw under any circumstances. It would have to be a fight to the death. Howard had about 180 men under his command, all of them young and eager to prove their worth. The weight of knowing that some of them would die that night had to have weighed heavily on his mind. At 016 hours, just after midnight of June 6, 1944, the gliders landed practically right next to the bridge. The men got out surprisingly unnoticed. What was more surprising was the fact that the sound of the gliders crashing didn't even alert the Germans. They didn't even hear it. So either they were listening to some loud tunes, or they were conked out. I think the latter is more true. Remember, it was after midnight, after a long, stormy couple of days. And think about yourself, when it's raining outside all day and you don't have anything to do, it tends to make one a little sleepy. 
As the commandos approached, they were spotted by a sentry. And the fight was on. Major Howard cheered his men on by chanting their nickname as the fighting began. Up the action back! Up the action back! The first platoon was ordered over the bridge to take out any sentries or machine gun nests on the west side as the rest of the men under Major Howard's command fought on the east side. As they charged, they were met with return fire that was deadly accurate. Several of the English soldiers were killed, including the platoon leader. But even with the losses, they were able to secure the bridge and remove all demolition packs they found. All within 15 minutes of the first shot being fired. They then settled in for a long night. The Germans were all around them, and they had panzers, infantry, and artillery at their disposal to kill or nullify the oxen bucks. But these Brits were determined to fight as long as they could. If they could hold out till Lord Lovett arrived from the coast, they might have a fighting chance. Fortunately, they were reinforced by British airborne troops about a half hour later, and they helped repel several different German counterattacks. The British soldiers fought back fiercely. Their lines gave way at times, but never broke. As they fought through the night, the words of Major Howard's superiors echoed in his mind. Hold until relieved. Hold until relieved. For over 12 hours, the British troops repelled numerous counterattacks. Despite having barely any anti-tank weapons of their own, they were able to destroy or damage numerous German tanks known as Panzer IVs with a German railgun that was next to the canal. A little after 1 p.m., the exhausted troops were finally able to relax for a few moments as they waited to see what the Germans' next counterattack would be like. Yeah, mate. Huh. They then heard in the distance a sound that seemed impossible to be true. What's the matter? Listen. I thought he had backpipes. Don't be daft. I told you I heard backpipes. It's a reinforcement. <laughs> it proved to be none other than Lord Lovett arriving from the coast with the badly needed reinforcements. On the bagpipes was Private Bill Millen blowing steadily without fear as they crossed over the bridge and helped repel the remaining counterattacks, and officially secured the bridge for the Allies. After the battle, Major Howard sat down and removed his helmet. Taking a deep breath, he let it out slowly and looked up into the sky. He still heard gunfire and other man-made noises, but at long last his brain was elsewhere. He watched for a few moments the clouds floating in the air, and then he heard his superior's words echo in his head one last time. Hold until relieved. Hold until relieved. He had held. The bridge had been held. Lieutenant Dick Winters of Easy Company of the 506th Infantry Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division was only 26 years old when he landed on French soil in the early hours of June 6, 1944. The shock from the jump had ripped off most of his equipment and he landed with his knife as his only weapon. Deep in enemy territory, he quickly gathered his wits about him and after making contact with some of his men from Easy Company and some stragglers from the 82nd Airborne, they made their way towards their destination of saint marie du mont 
By early morning, enough of his men had assembled, and they were ordered to take out several howitzers that were firing on Utah Beach. They were located at a place called Braycor Manor. Lieutenant Winters would lead the assault. He split his men up, having Lieutenant Compton with PFC Malarkey and Sergeant Garnier move into a flanking position where they could destroy a German machine gun nest and then provide covering fire for Winters and his men. Winters himself would lead the main assault. This guy has got to be one of the bravest leaders that ever fought a battle. His plan worked about as flawlessly as you can imagine. They destroyed all four howitzers using the Germans' own grenades. Now, how could they do this? Well, here's how. They would toss some TNT that they had down the barrel of the cannon and then throw a live grenade down as well. The explosion ripped open the barrel, rendering it useless. After the fight was over, the Germans had over 30 casualties, 20 killed and at least 12 captured. Of the attacking force, only four were killed and two wounded. One of the two wounded was PFC Popeye Wynn, who got shot in the butt. <laughs> he asked if he would get sent home, and when he heard he might, he groaned and replied, Man, I just got here. Imagine today any 20-something-year-old saying those words. I just want you to think for a split second. Would any 20-year-old you know say those words? The other thing that happened at Breakcore Manor was that as Winters was going through the trenches, he found a map that happened to contain every single cannon and machine gun emplacement along the Contentin Peninsula. This map was invaluable to the Allies and undoubtedly saved dozens if not hundreds of lives. In appreciation for this, the brass sent the first two tanks to land at Utah in to support and transport the tired airborne troops to their next destination. That night, Winters thought back through the actions of the day, the most important day of his life thus far, and another day that would surely live in infamy. Before closing his eyes in weariness, he got on his knees and thanked God for seeing him through D-Day and prayed that he would see him through D plus one. He promised himself something also, that if he survived, he would find a small farm somewhere in the Pennsylvania countryside and spend the remainder of his life in quiet and peace. This is adapted from his book, Beyond Band of Brothers. I cannot recommend this book enough, folks. Find a copy, somehow, any way you can, and read what this man lived through. It is definitely one of the best books I've ever read. As a result of the successful attack at Braycor Manor, Lieutenant Winters was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, which is the second highest military honor that can be bestowed upon an individual. The next highest would be the Medal of Honor. Galley Boy Jim Radford I can't give this man's story enough credit to tell you myself. I'd rather let him tell you himself. He was just 12 years old when he sailed to Normandy, and he saw things that made grown men weep. The tune he sings his song to 
is the music of Raglan Road, an old Irish ballad that is in and of itself hauntingly beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, Seaman Jim Radford. In the cold gray light of the 6th of June in the year of 44 The Empire Lot sailed out from Poe To join with thousands more The largest fleet the world had seen We sailed in close array And we set our course for Normandy at the dawning of the day There was not one man in all our crew But knew what lay in store For we had waited for that day Through five long years of war We knew that many would not return But all our hearts were true For we were bound for Normandy Where we had a job to do Now the Empire Lodge was a deep sea tub With a crew of thirty-three And I was just the galley boy On my first trip to sea I little thought when I left home Of the dreadful sights I'd see But I came to manhood on the day That I first saw Normandy At Aramanche off the beach of gold Neath the rocket's deadly glare We towed our block ships into place and we built a harbour there Mid shot and shell we built it well As history does agree While brave men died in the swirling tide On the shores of Normandy For every hero's name that's known A thousand died as well on stakes and wires their bodies all Rocked in the ocean swell And many a mother wept that day For the sons they loved so well Men who cracked a joke and catch the smoke As they stormed the gates of hell As the years passed by I can still recall the men I saw that day Who died upon that blood-soaked sand Where now sweet children play And those of you who were unborn Who've lived in liberty Remember those who made it so on the shores of Normandy 
German general Erg Marx looked at the map in his office. It was a map of the northern coast of France. It was June 5th, 1944, and he knew an Allied invasion was imminent. The entire German high command knew it also, but most believed it would happen at Pas de Calais. Marx knew that was too easy and was convinced it would take place at Normandy. And in bad weather. Listen to this brief clip from the film The Longest Day, where General Marx tells his aide his exact thoughts and how he thought Eisenhower would never take the risk. This clip is entirely in German, so I'll give you a brief translation at the end of it. Ich meine nur, weil Herr General doch diesmal die Rolle von Eisenhower spielen. Ich gewinne, weil ich gegen die Regeln vorgehe, Schiller. Wir erwarten, dass Sie am Patekale angreifen, an der engsten Stelle des Kanals, nicht wahr? Und auch noch bei gutem Wetter. Das ist doch zu einfach, mein Lieber. Das liegt zu sehr auf der Hand. Ich wähle die weiteste Entfernung und wenn das Wetter am schlechtesten ist, ich greife hier an. In der Normandie. Und bei schlechtem Wetter. Jetzt. Bei schlechtem Wetter. Eisenhower würde dieses Spiel niemals riskieren. Niemals. Loosely translated, his aide was telling him that you're playing the role of Eisenhower. General Marx said he wins because he plays against the rules. Everyone thought that they had attack at Calais, but he said that was too easy, too simple. He would attack at Normandy in bad weather, and that's how he would win. He played against the rules. He was a brilliant tactician, but he did not think Eisenhower would take the gamble. That's what he says at the end. Eisenhower would never take the gamble. Never. Boy, did he get that one wrong. Now, General Marx was a seasoned soldier, having served in the German army since 1910. He was a frontline officer who did his utmost best to lower the damage to civilian errors wherever his station was. And he was one of the few officers that every German soldier respected. He had fought in Poland during the Blitzkrieg and had helped orchestrate the invasion of the Soviet Union. In June of 1941, he was severely wounded and had to have his left leg amputated. After a year of recuperation, he rejoined the active service with a new wooden leg. By June of 1944, he was in command of the German 84th Army Corps under the leadership of Field Marshal Rommel. Marx removed his glasses and cleaned them off. It was nearing midnight, and June 6th was almost here. He was about to turn 53 years old. He felt much older. He thought of his two sons who had been killed during the invasion of Russia. He thought of his wife back home in Germany and wondered if he would ever see her again. He shook his head. He was certain of three things. First, Eisenhower would never risk invading in such terrible weather. Second, he would see his wife again as she was coming to see him in a couple of weeks. And finally, he knew his staff was about to walk in and wish him a happy birthday. As if on cue, his staff walked in and presented him with a birthday cake and a bottle of champagne, Vintage 31. He nodded his head in thanks. The room was deathly quiet as he cut the cake and then his aide served him and his officers. One of them turned on a record player and started playing Brahms' composition in Stille Nacht, one of his favorites.
About an hour later, he put on his overcoat and prepared to leave for the war games that were happening later that day in Reims. His aide wished him well as he received a wire. Curious, Marx turned and asked if everything was all right. His aide looked at him confused and said that vast amounts of dummy parachutists had landed behind the coastline. Marx furrowed his brow. He did not like the sound of this. He asked a call to be put into his colleague and fellow general Max Pemsel. He was certain that if the Allies were dropping dummies, that a larger force of real troops would be landing right behind them. The Invasion. He looked back up at the large map and stared at it for a long moment. Then he chuckled to himself. He was shocked. Eisenhower had indeed given the go-ahead in this weather. What a way to start a birthday. Staff Sergeant Ray Lambert came to notoriety back in 2019 when, at the annual Memorial Day concert, Sam Elliott told his story. I can't think of another way of sharing Sergeant Lambert's story. So without further ado, here is Sam Elliott to tell of Sergeant Lambert's life on D-Day on Omaha Beach. We were headed to Omaha Beach, and I was glad. After all the fighting in Africa and Sicily, I just wanted to get this war over with. It was daylight on the 6th. I went up on deck and found my brother Bill there. We talked about our chances and what our parents would think. About 6 a.m., the signal came to go to stations. My brother and I promised whoever survived would take care of the other's family. And we shook hands and went our separate ways. I climbed down the nets and got into the Higgins boat with my unit. On the way in, we could hear the battleships firing and see, our big, see the big shells landing ahead of us. Guys were getting sick and vomiting from the choppy water and the diesel fumes. As we got in closer, the Germans had a bird's eye view of us coming in. We picked up machine gun fire. The bullets clanged against the metal ramp of the boat like hail. Then the big 88s on the hill opened up. Every time a shell whistled overhead, all you could hear was the sound of a banshee screaming. Boats around us were burning. I saw men on fire. Even their shoes were on fire. Dead and wounded were floating in the water. We had orders not to stop and pick anyone up. I told my men when the ramp drops, hit the water hard and keep as low as you can to dodge the bullets. We sank up over our heads. That was the last time I saw most of them. 31 men jumped off that boat. Just seven of them made it to the beach. The only cover was a block of concrete the Germans had failed to clear. That's where I set up a collection point for the casualties. Medics were trained not to dig in. We were there to see the troops and for them to see us. I detailed Corporal Raymond Lepore to hunker down and treat the men while I brought in the injured. Ray and I had been together since 39. I knew I could count on him. It was total confusion. Shells exploding, boats blowing up, people yelling because they couldn't hear anything, machine gun bullets hitting the water all around you, the roar of the boats coming in. 
It's like you're all alone in a world of a million people because you're concentrating on what you have to do. Hadn't gone far when I felt a bullet go through my right arm. I just kept going. I was thinking of only one thing, getting to the men who needed me. There was a soldier laying right on the edge of the water. One arm was almost shot off. Every time a wave would come in, that arm would be pulled back out to sea, and he'd try to reach out for it. The first thing you're supposed to do is keep a wounded man from going into shock. But he was too far gone. Nothing I could do for him. He died in my arms. I was on my way to treat another soldier when a piece of shrapnel the size of my hand tore a hole in my left thigh. I put a tourniquet on it, gave myself a shot of morphine, and went back to work. You did the job you were trained to do. If you didn't, you died. I could feel my right arm going numb from the first bullet. Saw a guy struggling in chest-deep water. Grabbed him with my good arm just as a Higgins boat rolled in and dropped its ramp. The ramp hit me right in the back, crushed two vertebrae, and pushed us both to the bottom. That's when I started talking to the one guy I knew could help me. I said, God, I've asked you many times, but just give me another chance. Let me save one more person. And for some reason, that boat raised its ramp and backed out. Somehow I managed to drag his boat to safety. I told Corporal Lepore he'd have to take my place. He stood up and then he just collapsed against my shoulder. His helmet fell off and I saw the hole right in the center. Everything went black after that. The next thing I knew I was on a boat going back to England. A Navy doctor looked at my dog tags and he told me, we have another Lambert here. My brother's Bill's stretcher was put right next to mine on the dock at Weymouth. He'd been on the beach with G Company. We went to the hospital in the same ambulance. When I woke up, he was on the cot next to me. He looked over and said, what are you doing here? Same thing you are, I told him. And he said, oh God, now what's mother gonna think? We both made it out okay. Bill lived to be 92. People who have never been in a war should understand what soldiers give up. The guys we left on Omaha Beach never had a chance to live the lives they've dreamed of. Day hasn't gone by when I haven't prayed for the men we lost and their families. I still wake up at night sometimes thinking about the guys. Every man that walked into those machine guns and that artillery fire on Omaha Beach that day, every man was a hero. What kind of person would I be if I didn't tell their stories? Such an honor, such an honor, sir, to tell your story. God bless you. Private John Steele.
climbed aboard the C-47 that would take him and 15 other paratroopers to France. He was the oldest man on the plane, being 29, over 10 years older than the youngest man there, Private Ken Russell, who was only 17. The roar of the engine's planes sputtered to life, and a few moments later, they were airborne. Literally and figuratively. Within a few hours, they would be in France and start the beginning of Hitler's downfall. The light came on, and the jump commander told the others to stand up and hook up. Then they checked off each other's gear, sounded off, and waited. The light changed from red to green, and they were off. They filed out of the plane and jumped into the black sky. But something wasn't right. As his parachute opened, it lurched him backwards and then slowed his descent. But instead of seeing dark fields below him, he saw the lights of a town. And worse yet, they were headed straight for the middle of it. One of the buildings was immersed in flames, and seconds later, their large white parachutes were illuminated and they became easy targets. As he got closer to the ground, he suddenly felt a searing pain in his left foot. He assumed it was either flak or a bullet, but whatever it was, it hurt like the devil. Ironically, he never hit the ground. Instead, his parachute snagged onto the church of the town, and he hung limply, stunned for a few moments. Shaking his head, Private Steele looked around and saw several of his buddies landing below him. He grabbed his knife and started to cut himself free, but he was so tangled that he lost his grip on his knife and it fell to the ground. He had no choice but to hang limply and play dead. For over two hours, he hung there. The bells had stopped just after he had gotten snagged, but the sound still reverberated in his mind. At around 3 a.m., he was taken prisoner by two Germans positioned in the church. They helped him get out of the chute and then escorted him down to where eight other GIs were being held prisoner also. A medic bandaged up his foot and a shot of morphine to help deaden the pain. As dawn broke the night's darkness, he hobbled to the window and looked out over the town. To his horror, he saw several of his buddies hanging from their chutes on telephone poles and trees. Dead. They had been killed before they hit the ground. He turned away and tried his best not to vomit. He would do whatever it took to rejoin his unit and make those responsible pay. Four days later, he managed to escape and found his unit. However, he was evacuated back to England because his injury was too severe to continue on with the Normandy campaign. These men's stories you've just heard were just ordinary men. To them, they were nothing special. Just average G.I.s who got notoriety that the fallen deserved more than they did. But to us, their audience, they were heroes. They are heroes because they never gave in, even when things looked bleak. They kept on. All of these men survived the war, save one. General Eric Marks was killed one week later when a plane strafed his staff car, mortally wounding him. He died shortly before 10 a.m. on June 13th, never seeing his wife again. Major John Howard was in a car accident in the autumn of 1944 and was seriously injured. His time in battle had come to an end. 
He lived out the rest of his life quietly, never making a big show of things. He was a mild man who did not seek glory. In 1959, author Cornelius Ryan published a book entitled The Longest Day, which covers the D-Day invasion in detail. It included Major Howard's role in the operation, and it was later turned into a movie with the same name. Ironically, one of his former junior officers who took part in the operation portrayed him in the movie, Richard Todd. It was a huge success, and it helped Major Howard not disappear unnoticed in the history books. He lived to be 86 years old and died on May 5, 1999. Lieutenant Winters was one of the greatest soldiers to ever put on a uniform. He, like so many though, did not wish to talk about his time in the war. However, when author Stephen Ambrose approached him about a book idea, he decided to share his story. It would later be published as Band of Brothers, and it was adapted for the small screen as a miniseries with the same name. It made Major Winters a living legend, and he, along with many other Easy Company survivors, were thrilled that their story was inspiring so many. As you heard a few minutes ago, he wrote a memoir that further detailed his time during the Second World War that was also well received. In his later years, he fulfilled the promise he made to himself when he found the small Pennsylvania farm where he lived out the rest of his days. He passed away in 2011 at the age of 92. In 2014, a memorial was unveiled bearing Winter's likeness near Saint-Marie-de-Mont as a tribute not only to him, but to all paratroopers who landed behind enemy lines and fought like hell to achieve the ultimate victory. I personally have visited Major Winter's gravesite, and it is in a very quiet and calm cemetery located in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. If you ever find yourself close by there, it's worth stopping by. Seaman Jim Radford had lived a quiet life until the 70th anniversary of D-Day when he performed his song and won international acclaim. He even won the admiration of the royal family. Unfortunately, he had some legal troubles at the end of his life. He was accused of sexual misconduct that occurred over 20 years prior. The case was later dismissed, not due to the lack of evidence, but because in November of 2020, Seaman Radford passed away at the age of 92. I do not know whether or not the claims were true. I do not know if he was a good man or if he was a scumbag. But what I do know is this. His story will remain as one of the most memorable through the fact that he was the youngest known participant in Operation Overlord, and for his song, The Shores of Normandy. There is a quote I recently heard that speaks well of the situation of the turmoil we may face when we want to admire someone for their military prowess, but do not admire their personal lives. And that quote is, the heroes of war aren't always the heroes of life. And that was said by my good buddy Austin. Hopefully he'll coin that phrase and copyright it or however he has to do it, but... It's such a good quote. The heroes of war aren't always the heroes of life. Sergeant Ray Lambert recovered from his injuries and lived a quiet life as a local businessman in Alabama and North Carolina. He had no intentions of talking about his time in the war, but as he grew older, he saw more and more of his fellow soldiers dying without sharing their experiences. He thought it his duty to share not only his story, but theirs in which he did 
when he published his autobiography just before the 75th anniversary of D-Day. He explained why he did so as follows. My job now is to remember, not for my sake, but for the sake of others. After the Memorial Day concert in 2019, he journeyed back to Omaha Beach for the 75th commemoration ceremony of D-Day. He was greeted by the French President Emmanuel Macron, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and President of the United States Donald Trump, who talked about him in his speech. At the end of the address, the President turned to Sergeant Lambert and said, Ray, the free world salutes you. Ray turned 100 in November of 2020, an age I'm sure he never thought possible as he lay badly wounded in a hospital back in England in 1944. On April 9th, 2021, Ray Lambert passed away peacefully surrounded by his family. He had lived a long and content life and lived to see the recognition he rightfully deserved. On his final trip to Normandy, he said this, When I look at the beaches at Omaha, I remember all my friends that were killed there. And when I look at the channel and the water is rough, it seems at times that I can hear voices. Rest easy, sir. Your legacy will not be forgotten. Private John Steele almost fell into the deep chasm of forgotten soldiers. He returned to his home state of Illinois and lived a quiet life. He did not like to talk about the war. One of his brothers had been killed in Germany in April 1945. In 1957, though, he received a letter from an Irish-born journalist, author, Cornelius Ryan. He was preparing to write a book about D-Day and was reaching out to hundreds of veterans to hear their stories, some of which he would put into his book. Steele replied with the following, Suspended on the bell tower under the cornice of the Church of St. Mariglaise. This naturally intrigued Ryan, who made sure to research Steele's story further. He included his story in his book, which was entitled The Longest Day. Albeit only briefly, the book was a huge success and made Steele's name known worldwide. Shortly after its release, the movie under the same name went into production. Again, the creators wanted to focus a tiny segment on Steele. They cast comedian Red Buttons in the role, and he portrayed Steele quite well. Recounting a conversation he had with Steele after the premiere, Red Button said that Steele told him, Kid, I'm glad they picked you to play me because I wouldn't want to go through that again. Steele did wonder at the inaccuracies of the scenes where he is portrayed, but granted the fact that Hollywood had to take certain liberties. He returned to St. Mariglaise and was delighted to find the townspeople remembered him so well. Unfortunately, his health began to deteriorate in the early 60s from complications of throat cancer. He later succumbed to the disease on May 16, 1969. In his honor, the citizens of St. Mariglaise created a monument dedicated to him, a life-size replica of him hanging in the exact same spot he had hung on June 6, 1944. Parachute and all. To this day, you can still see it as you look up at it. Maybe you'll hear the bells that rang in his ears that dark night so long ago. These are but a few of the thousands of stories that occurred on D-Day. I hope these true tales piqued your interest into researching more about the Day of Days. I would suggest, for those who don't prefer reading, to watch any documentary you can find on D-Day. There have been numerous movies made about it as well. The best two, in my opinion, are, of course, The Longest Day and Saving Private Ryan. 
The other best dramatization I've seen about D-Day are the first two episodes of the miniseries Band of Brothers. There are also numerous other podcasts that talk about D-Day and the basic overall history of the event. But if you can, look for the stories such as these. Stories either told by the veterans themselves or told about them in vivid detail. That way, you can get to know the men who fought and of whom many died to preserve freedom and end tyranny. And make sure to never let their stories be forgotten. Tell them to the next generation. Inspire them with tales of their courage. How they too were afraid, but still performed their duties and won the day. That's what we can do also, if we try hard enough. Won't know unless we actually do try. So let's make a pact with each other right now. I'm going to give it a try. It might just work. And now, as promised, here is the audio of President Roosevelt addressing the nation on the night of June 6th, 1944, where he told the American people about D-Day. My fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And so, in this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings, their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tried by night and by day, without rest, until the victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. For these men are lately drawn from the ways of peace, they fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, 
and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of brave men overseas, whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them, help us, almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. Many people have urged that I call the nation into a single day of special prayer. But because the road is long and the desire is great, I ask that our people devote themselves in a continuance of prayer. As we rise to each new day, and again when each day is spent, let words of prayer be on our lips, invoking thy help to our efforts. Give us strength, too, strengthen our daily tasks, to redouble the contributions we make in the physical and the material support of our armed forces. And let our hearts be stout to wait out the long travel, to bear sorrows that may come, to impart our courage unto our sons, wheresoever they may be. And, O oh Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. Let not the keenness of our spirit ever be dulled. Let not the impacts of temporary events, of temporal matters of but fleeting moment, let not these deter us in our unconquerable purpose. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogances. Lead us to the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace, a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men, and a peace that will let all men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done, almighty God. Amen. And that will do it for this episode of the Snowman Podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did recording it. Please share with your family and friends. You can subscribe either on Spotify or iTunes. If you liked it, please leave a five-star review so as to make it easier for your friends and family to find it. But as I always say, 
You can find me by just typing in the Snowman Podcast and looking for an American flag with a snowman in the foreground. Till next time, this is Snowman, and I'll see you now, yeah? What do you think Hitler said when he found out the Allies had invaded? I did not see that coming. Get it? Not see, not see. I wonder if he would get furious at that type of joke. <laughs> yeah, all right, I'll stop talking it. That was a good one.